hey there, and welcome back to Winds of Change, the Reckless Abandon podcast. My name is Travis, and today we're talking about worship, and let me tell you, I am so excited about the guest and friend of mine that's going to be joining us, David Manor. Now, before I get too far into the show, I do want to take a second to tell you a little bit about how I know David, because I think it's kind of a cool story. So I'm in the States right now, and believe it or not, that's actually quite unusual for me, because I've spent the past six years of my life in Johannesburg, South Africa, as a missionary kid. But anyways, I'm in the States right now, and my family is on furlough, reconnecting with all of our churches, and updating them on what God's been doing in our lives these past several years. And so we're at a different church every week, sometimes even two, and about five, six weeks ago, I was at a church and ran into this guy named David Manor. And David Manor was the interim pastor there at the time. And come to find out, he is also a professor of worship at Liberty University. Now, this was super exciting for me because I'm actually interested in studying worship. And also, I'm interested in studying worship at Liberty University. So I thought that was awesome. Cool little backstory. And yeah, let's get into it. Dave, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we uh, get started? Sure. Yeah, let me just give you a little bit of background. Uh, I actually work for a, a Baptist convention in Kansas and Nebraska as the associate executive director there. And so I, I was, um, Travis and I met at the church in the Kansas City area. Um, I'm actually serving there until they can find a new pastor. I'm helping them make that transition. But my background educationally uh, is actually in music and worship. Um, I was a local church worship pastor for 20 plus years before I came to the convention office 17 years ago. I've been at the convention now for 17 years. And a part of my responsibility here in our churches in Kansas and Nebraska is to serve in addition to leadership development is also a worship consultant. So I obviously keep my hand in, even though I'm not um, in local churches as much uh, other, you know, I'm doing interims in those, uh, sometimes in music and worship and sometimes pastoral interims. Right. Excellent. And how did you get into worship ministry? Well, I, as a teenager, was serving at a church a church camp, actually, and uh, felt God calling me to ministry. And, and then just as that developed, I realized that God was calling me to, to music ministry. Um, and so I, I went to college and studied music and did that master's level and then did doctoral work in worship studies. Um, so that's just been kind of a, a, an ongoing thing for me of worship understanding and wanting to learn more about it. Right. That's so cool. Uh, I know for me, I've always been interested in music. I started playing the piano probably 10 years ago, and then I picked up the guitar last year. And growing up in the church, especially with my family being uh, missionaries to South Africa, I always kind of thought I understood what worship was. And then just over the past the last two years or so, I've been actually looking into um, seeing what God's Word has to say. And I've really been amazed by how wrong my conceptions were or not even wrong, but just limited. You know what I mean? It was so much greater than what I thought it was. I just thought it was kind of singing a couple songs, but it's so much more than that. And so would you be willing to kind of tell us what worship is? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I think uh, quickly, I'll I'll kind of say just maybe a quick definition of what my understanding of worship is. And and I think if we're going to understand what worship is, we have to also understand what worship isn't a little bit too. So maybe I'll share a couple of those thoughts. Um, which relate to what you said. I think sometimes we we kind of invert um, what worship is and what what worship isn't and get that a little bit confused. So Mm -hmm. 
My understanding of worship is this, that worship is our response to God's revelation. Now, that's that's a just a quick, brief uh, definition of that, but let me explain a, a little bit more in depth what that means. God's revelation is that occurs when when he offers us a glimpse of his activity and his will and his attributes. Then our response to that is that sometimes spontaneous uh, and sometimes planned or premeditated reply to that revelation, uh, and that's what we call worship. And so that could be music, definitely, but it's so much more than that, which brings kind of maybe to that what it isn't. Let me let me touch on that real quickly. I wrote an article a couple of years ago. Um, there's a um, these old circuses that used to come to, through town in these these trains. They would come through, and they would have uh, no axe other than a, a small horse or a pony. And those circuses became known as one-trick pony circuses. That's where that idiom came from. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, and so that idiom now uh, is used to identify a person or organization that only does one thing and sometimes even not very well. Mm-hmm. Music in the church especially has devolved into worship's one-trick pony. And so it's become that only one thing we do, and we assume that that is our only worship, then everything else fits into another category. But worship is so much more than that. I mean, Harold Best actually said this. He said that that worship is continuous. It just depends on whom or what you're worshiping. If it's continuous, then it can't just be contained in our song set on Sunday morning. No, definitely. So I always get kind of annoyed, and I don't really have a problem with it, but it's just sad that we call these guys worship pastors, and then we just call the other guys senior pastors, and we say, hey, we're going to do worship time, and then it's time for the preaching, when really it's an all-encompassing thing that includes our entire service. Yes, it does, and beyond, too. So it doesn't start with a song set. It doesn't start with a beginning song and end with a closing song. If worship is continuous, uh, then what happens on that hour on Sunday, uh, you, you have to ask the question then, if worship starts and stops with what we do on Sunday morning, then what are we doing the other six days and 23 hours of the week? Right, right. So we, we, we are worshiping, but the question is, whom or what are we worshiping? So are we worshiping self or are we worshiping other people? Or are we worshiping the God of creation, the God that reveals himself to us? And that, that could look uh, um, a lot different when we get outside beyond what we do on Sunday morning. Uh, of how we even treat, you know, if you go to a restaurant after the morning service, how you treat the the server at the restaurant is an act of worship. How you treat your family on the way home is an act of worship. When you go back to school or back to work uh, in your neighborhood, those things are also acts of worship. And, you know, there may not be a lot of singing going on there. Right, of course. And I love how Bob Coughlin says it when he says we never begin worship, we aim it. We're always worshiping something or someone. And I think that's so true. Like you're saying, it doesn't start at the first song. It is continuous. It starts on Monday and goes through Sunday and starts over the next week. It's It never ends. And I think that's so important for us to remember because as human beings, unfortunately, we're always trying to divide life into sacred and secular. And it just doesn't really work that way. God demands our all or nothing. Yeah. And it's, it, there's also an element there of, you know, what causes the worship. And so if God reveals himself to us, our, it's our response is the act of worship. The, the, sometimes we invert that and we believe that our actions determine then God's revelation when it's the other way around. We're responding to that revelation. So we've inverted that cause and effect, that understanding that God's revelation is the cause and our response is then the effect. And sometimes we have the belief that, that if we just give 
uh, offer more and more and more of effect, meaning uh, a better and better song set potentially every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And that's going to that's going to then cause more cause or God's revelation. But if you think about a great model in Isaiah chapter six, when when God revealed himself to Isaiah, that was the cause. And he when he said, woe is me, for I am ruined. And then then God revealed his mercy to Isaiah and Isaiah's then response was, here am I, send me. So he had, it, then his act of service became an act of worship in response to God's revealed mercy to him. Right. So it starts with God. It doesn't start with us. And it's not God's response to us. It's our response to God. And I think that's so important to keep in mind at all times. Right now. So think about one element there and we can move on to another thing. So then how arrogant is it for us to assume that what we sing or how we sing it on Sunday morning determines whether God shows up or not? If he's the one that started the conversation, we're joining him in that conversation. Instead of thinking the song set that we do, as great as it might be, is going to determine whether God shows up or not. Of course. Yeah, I always kind of laugh after the service when I walk into a church and they open their song set with some kind of song like, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. I'm like, of course the Holy Spirit's welcome there. (laughs) We don't need to welcome the Holy Spirit into our service. He's there. Long before we got right, there. Right, right. He's been around a while, so that's really cool. Why do you think worship's important? Well, I, I think we have a mandate. Uh, I think uh, God expects us to worship. Um, I mean, obviously, worship is important for the Christ follower. And we learn from Scripture uh, that we were created and sustained so we can offer our worship to God alone for His glory. That's our responsibility. In fact, in, in Mark chapter 12... If you remember that text, when and this is also found in the Old Testament, when, when, when the scribes asked Jesus which of the commandments were the greatest, his response was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength, and then love your neighbor as you love yourself. Mm-hmm. That's worship. Loving God with our heart, with, with all of our being, is worship. And so when the scribes asked Jesus what commandment, what our responsibility is to worship him. So that's why worship is so important. We don't have a choice as Christ followers. If we're following that mandate and the commandment of God, we don't have a choice but to worship Him. Hmm. So how do we ensure that our worship is pointed in the right direction? Because often for me, I find that, like you were saying, we get so engrossed in what we're singing, or even if it's not a Sunday morning, just in life. And we begin worshiping either ourselves or um, what It could be video games, it could be reading, it could be music, it could be any one of a million things. And how do we always ensure that it's pointed up at God? How do we put some checks and balances in place that help us to regularly assess and say, uh, no, that's not God. I need to refocus, regain perspective, and start directing my worship to where it's truly due. Yeah, that's a great question. And and you can ask that question personally and you can ask it corporately too. Let's let's start with the um the the personal aspect of that because I think if in the band and those uh, singers as they help lead and worship, um their their public worship will never arise above their their private worship. And so it's it's that understanding uh that if it, how we ensure that our public worship is going to be God honoring and pointed toward him is only when our private worship is also that. That even goes back to that Mark chapter 12 passage. We we love God with our heart. This is our whole being, not just a part of us. We don't just love God with our talent. It, the text says we love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then that, that's not enough beyond that. You also then need to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So that's a great checks and balance issue right there of, of thinking about those elements. So let me quickly run through those. So if you think about your heart, 
that the heart is is a symbol of our emotions, and, and worship is indeed emotional. But sometimes it, we make it just emotional how we feel, and if we don't feel a certain way, we believe we haven't worshipped. So worship is emotional, but it's even beyond that. And some of the emotions go beyond just happiness too. If we're loving God with all our heart, that means it's sorrow and pain and grief and fear, loneliness. Those are also um, emotions that are a part of that understanding. So that's a part of that checks and balance. If we love God with all our soul, that's the understanding that true worship doesn't begin with our worship actions, but it begins on the inside in the depth of our soul. So spirit and truth worship begins in our soul, not with our worship actions. What then occurs on the inside then is manifested in our worship actions. We sometimes invert that. Right. We look if we worship God with our minds, that that allows us to approach worship with knowledge and insight, not just feelings and reason and creativity and, and imagination and those things. Paul said that spiritual transformation occurs through the renewing of our minds. If if we don't engage our minds in worship, it's gonna to lead to thoughtless worship. Mm. And then, then worship God with our strength. That, that's that understanding that we have. Liturgy actually means the work of the people. So worship without strength is often passive. Uh, so we need to make sure that worship is a verb. Robert Weber said that first. Actually wrote a book three decades ago, Worship is a Verb. So when we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, then we are responding to God's workmanship by actually doing good works. And then finally, if, we're, if we are a checks and balances, if we are then loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, it doesn't matter how good our worship is in here. It's still incomplete until it includes how we treat our neighbors out there. Uh, yeah. Living in South Africa, we're constantly presented with that need. Uh, we were listening to a sermon one day. Uh, we had a guest star at our church, and he actually spoke on how important it is to actually prove with our actions that what we say with our heart is true. So his point mm -hmm. was that if I were to go to his door, and in South Africa it's a gate because there's high security, but if I was to go to his gate and I was to say, hey, I, um, I'm without food, I'm without money, my car isn't working, I need your help. The one response that we often think he would give is, hey, I'll be praying for you. And of mm -hmm. course, in that moment, I do need prayer. But what I also need is I actually need him to show me God's love. And I need him to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And so if he just stands inside his gate and says, hey, I'll pray for you, and then walks inside, that's not true worship. And I think we're so often caught up in that. We're just... We at least think we're worshiping God, but we yep. refuse to prove it with our actions. And it's just, it's not true worship. Yeah. So that that's that personal but corporate thing, too. That I mean, that's what you're talking about there and that loving God with who we are. So worship it really has to spring forth from every aspect of our being or it may not be worship at all. So then when you look at that corporately, I think then we have a responsibility as worship leaders to implement. This is kind of the practical side of that. I, and this is uh, my blog uh, obviously leans toward this because it's, it's called worship evaluation. But I think we need to evaluate our worship consistently. Of course. You know, you know, there's a you've seen the, the medical shows and, and um, cop shows about medical examiners and they do those post-mortems yeah, after yeah. to determine what happened. There's also a term called pre-mortem. Okay. And what that is, is you, you look ahead and think of those things that could possibly derail your worship. And so you do some worship pre-mortems and then you do worship post-mortems. And, and, and I would recommend that be done with a, a group uh, of people not just one person that does that, but you get several people together and they evaluate the worship, not just the logistics on how the band sounded, but but was our worship um, theologically, scripturally, historically um, deep, foundationally, not just stylistically, was it good? 
but was it based on biblical things that we need to evaluate to determine if we're if, if our worship is actually in spirit and truth? Of course. And are there any tips or uh, pieces of advice that you would give us on doing that just on a purely personal level? I know you talk a lot about corporate worship on your blog, and that's what you have there. But what would you, is there a list of maybe two to three, maybe even up to five questions that you would encourage us to uh, use in evaluating our own hearts if we're worshiping correctly when we go to church on Sunday morning and when we come home? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got a I've got an extensive list on my blog that's like six pages of questions you can ask. But I think some of those questions are that we, that we have to ask uh, every Sunday. And we can ask this of our worship is, you know, does our worship reflect the gospel mm-hmm. or, or did it? You know, you know, you can ask on the front end, will it and then did it on the back end? I like that. Does it reflect the gospel? Is it is it based on Scripture? Did, did we start with our song selection, or did we actually start with scripture? Mm-hmm. You know, are, are the foundational elements there? Is 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 does it start with scripture? Uh, is prayer foundational, or was prayer used just as a a service transitional element? You know, sometimes we've relegated prayer to that. <laughs> um, breath of fresh air, so the band can get on the platform. Right, it's so absurd and yet so true. Yeah, but you know, I, the World Series just finished. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but the, the World Series just finished. And think about uh, in baseball, they've got that utility infielder that sits on the bench and comes in if another player gets hurt or is not playing well and can play pretty well any position. Well, prayer has been re- relegated to the utility infielder of the worship service. So we we plug it in those holes, not as a profound conversation with God, but just as a service transition. And so uh, scripture must be foundational, prayer must be foundational, uh, communion must be foundational. And then we have to ask the question then, have we elevated music above those Kairos God time events in the service? And if we have, then we need to evaluate uh, why. Right. Well, D.A. Carson is often quoted for saying, despite the protestations, one sometimes wonders if we are beginning to worship worship rather than worship God. And how true is that? Yeah, I read that article recently. That I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about there. I mean, and we worship not just worship itself, but even how we do it. Right, of course. You know, based on what you were saying about basing our worship on scriptural, um, in my article on knowing the object of our worship, which will be released later this week, I make the statement that every single one of us has likely fallen prey to the sin of idolatry at one point or another in our lives. And of course, when I say this, I'm not saying that we have all literally bowed down to a Buddha statue, but what I am saying is that we are all guilty of making claims claims, whether they be external or internal, that the God I serve would never do that. And what are the Mm -hmm. dangers of this form of idolatry? I think we often say, oh, well, I don't worship Buddhas, or I don't worship video games, or even God is the highest. But then there comes a situation, and it comes to us like uh, we hear about our parents or our aunt and uncle or whatever the case, and we find out they're getting divorced, and we're like... Uh, well, that's not biblical. And then they want to get remarried to somebody else. And we're like, well, God wouldn't want them to be happy. And the God I serve, he would never want them to stay unmarried forever. And there are so many issues that we come in contact with where we say, hey, the God I serve wouldn't do that. And that's not necessarily true. And so what are the dangers of worshiping our own version of God? Yeah. Well, Harold Best, uh, there's a great quote. Harold Best wrote this. He said, idolatry is the difference between walking in the light and creating our own light to walk in. And so really what idolatry is, is the idea that uh, our focus is on, it, it could be anything, but our, our focus is on uh, anything except the image of God. So we're mm-hmm. creating God's image 
He's not created in ours. There, so, so what that reality is is that we're actually uh, we are stepping into His story, not asking Him to step into our story. So, any any time that we ask Him to step into our story, then that can lean toward idolatry. It's interesting. I'm, I look forward to reading your article because I wrote uh, an article this week too that that kind of uh, it parallels a little bit of that. Ada Beto, uh, Toza wrote a great uh, article and and actually a book, but this was a part of that, and it was also made an article form. And he said this, he says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other? And they are one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each much must individually bow. And so that with that understanding of worship and idolatries, we think, especially as it relates to that worship understanding, we have to ask the question, what standard is it that we are tuning our worship to so it doesn't become idolatrous? And if that standard is anything other than God the Father, God the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit, then our worship will always be out of tune. But if it is tuned, if it is tuned to Him, and that's, that's a great question to ask— if we if it leans toward idolatry, so what does that look like? If you know, here's here's some illustrations of what that might look like. Your your worship is out of tune if you ever ask what's in it for me. So then then the idol becomes self. Right, which is so ironic because people are always leaving churches because they didn't get what they needed. Right, I, I I didn't worship today because they didn't either sing or play my songs. I didn't know the songs. It was too loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever. I that we didn't sing enough hymns or we didn't sing enough modern <laughs> songs. Right. You can go through the list. Yeah. I mean, idol idol even for some churches, idol even becomes attire. What you wear. You know, if, if a coat and tie or or untucked shirt and and jeans is your standard, then it becomes idolatrous. So if how you do it becomes the standard. It's also idolatrous. If if musical excellence is the standard, then that can lean toward idolatry. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to be musically excellent and do you know, offer the best gifts that we possibly have. But if that's the starting point, instead of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we'll always lean toward idolatry, idolatry there. So it, you make a list. I mean, it, it can, you know, if you use a worship band— and that's your standard or orchestra or choir or worship team, whatever the situation. If you do a, a more of a fixed liturgy or a free liturgy, and that's your standard, or if creativity is your standard or novelty or nostalgia is your standard, then that becomes idolatry. So I'm, I'm looking forward to your article. I'm, I'll look forward to reading that. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's just been so, wow, mind-opening to really think about it and think about how many times I— have actually made God to be who I want him to be just because I didn't like what he said or what he did. And it's just not the case. It's not It's not our freedom. I don't have to like what God says or does. I just have to understand that he knows more than me and he is infinitely wiser than me. And that's where it stops. I mean, yeah, so awesome. How do you think we build a lifestyle of all-encompassing worship? Uh, we've talked a lot already about how worship doesn't start and stop on Sunday morning with the praise set, but how does it continue into the rest of our lives? What are some different characteristics that you would use to describe a person who's living a life of all-encompassing worship? Well, I think that goes back to that Mark passage. I mean, if if you're living a lifestyle of all-encompassing worship, then you're loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. But it, it's that reality and, and realization that, as we've already talked about, that it can't start or stop. 
Uh, I did an article a while back, um, and and it, I don't know if you remember, um, and you've probably seen uh, replays of this movie, the movie Castaway. Yeah, yeah, watched it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still love that movie because Tom Hanks is. I mean, he's like the only guy in the movie, and he's he carries it. Right. I don't know if you remember in that story when he first gets to the island, he's looking through boxes of stuff, and he. You know, he finds like an ice skate. What is, it, what is he going to do with that on a, you know, deserted island in the Pacific or wherever he was? And so, but then he, he goes through this process where he actually is trying to uh, to start a fire from scratch. And he's, he's using all these implements and some of it's humorous and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's pretty serious. And he actually cuts his hand and that's when he grabs the um, the soccer ball. Um, that Wilson, who becomes his friend, and you know, heaves it. Remember that blood on the ball and yeah. becomes a face there. Uh, but the, the idea was that if you remember that that scene, he he was uh, he offers us a glimpse of this resolve, despair, and anger, and, and that humor as he labored over trying to start a fire from scratch. We as worship leaders and we as worshipers can experience similar emotions uh, when we are expected for that that fire to be lit only on Sunday morning with the opening song. Okay, so even though um, some of those people have not done anything throughout the week, they still expect the worship leaders to light their fire on Sunday morning. Right. And when it does occur, they either blame the, the worship leader or the music or the musicians but when the spark isn't there. So it, it, worship is a daily conversation. It's not a weekly event. I love that. Worship is a daily conversation, not a weekly event. And how good to keep that in mind. Yeah. So so we've got to constantly keep that in mind. So every day we wake up and say, God, you know, how is it that you want me to worship today? And Harold Best uh, says it this way. He says, if we're not careful, our actions can imply that that time and place worship is the primary, if not only, venue for worship, while the remainder of our lives falls into, into another category. Sunday then can be a frustrating exercise of trying to start a fire from scratch every week. So what if, here's, there, there was a, and I wrote this in the article, but there was an ancient nomadic people, and they used to, uh, when they were able to actually have fire, they learned how to then to, to use these earthenware vessels, and they, called, they were called fire pots. They would carry the some of the embers of their fire because they were traveling. They were nomadic people, and they were traveling, and and they would keep these embers in these fire pots, and they would put a little bit of kindling in there throughout the day, and keep these slow burning fires or embers burning as they traveled from one location to another. So that when they arrived in the evening, they could then restart that fire with those embers that had been ignited before. And they, that enables them to quickly ignite larger fires when they unite as a group for their evening camp. So what if then, just a rule of thumb, what if we had that same understanding of worship or Sunday worship and saw it not as a fire to start each Sunday, but a, but a flame that can be taken with us, then it continues as we leave the service and it happens in our homes, it happens in our schools and at our work. Um, it, it's not contained in a single location or context or culture or style or or um, stylistic expression or even vehicle of communication. So consequently, then, instead of depending on our worship leaders to start that fire every every week from scratch, they would just help us then fan those flames that were already existing because of how we live throughout the week. Psalm 34 one says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. So his praise shall continually be on my mouth or in my mouth. 
and on my lips. So that goes to that, that, that song that all of us sing, your praise will ever be on my lips. Mm-hmm. That definitely changed the dynamic. So if we expect worship to occur on Sunday, healthy worship, then it has to occur throughout the week. And so we as worship leaders have to, to teach our congregations not only to worship on Sunday when we lead them, but we need to exhort them and model for them how then they can worship throughout the week. Right, definitely. And I really like that. And one of the things I've realized in my life is that we often, and it's very unfortunate and it's very American, but in American culture, we often think of older people, especially in the context of the church, as being people that are very stuck up and people that don't really want to be excited about worship. And so we feel like they're holding us back. And they are, they can at times be a little stuck in their ways, as can we when we say we don't want to sing hymns and vice versa. But at the same time, I am constantly blown away by the different older people in my life that live that lifestyle you were talking about. They live a lifestyle where the worship doesn't die on Sunday. I know Mm -hmm. for me, I often, I'm very quick to get excited about what's happening on Sunday, and I'm quick to raise my hands or do whatever. And in that moment, I may seem more excited than they are, but in reality, they are living a lifestyle that goes from week to week to week. And if you were to actually talk to them, they are so much more grounded in their relationship with God than I am. And it's just because they don't let that flame die. Over the years, they have realized how valuable it is. And I'm so young in my faith that I don't understand what it's like not to live with that flame inside me. And so I think that's a big thing just to look to them and say, hey, wow, you are so faithful. How can we model that? Yeah. And then what occurs then when we actually get together on Sunday then the worship that occurs on Sunday is just an overflow of the worship that's already been occurring during the week in the lives of the people of the church. So can you imagine what worship could actually be like on Sunday if we've been living that lifestyle of worship throughout the rest of the week? What an incredible time it would be. So for those who are interested in kind of pursuing this topic further and continuing to think and pray and read about worship, what resources would you suggest? I know you have a blog, um, if you could refer them to that. And then what else? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my blog is worshipevaluation.org. And I usually post about once a week. I've been doing that for probably six years. So I've got, you know, 350 different articles on there. Um, that's that's one of the you know, things I would recommend checking that. I've, you know, I've got some other uh, there's some other great resources out there. Of course, I, I love to read. Um, I, you know, I would I would recommend if you're if you're interested in reading deeper understanding of that that uh, deeper biblical and theological worship and not just song selection, Robert Weber, anything he's written. Um, ancient future worship. Um, he's written some great stuff. You've already mentioned Bob Coughlin, and uh, if you've not read any of his stuff, his blog, obviously you know about that, but others out there may not. Um, he's written some great stuff out there. You know, I've got some other links on my my blog too of some some different blogs that I follow. Uh, of some friends. In fact, a few years ago, several of us started doing a Google Hangout. We'd never met each other in person, about 10 of us doing Google Hangout once a month uh, just to talk about worship issues. So uh, there's some great resources out there. Um, obviously, you guys are doing some good stuff, and I commend you for that. And if you're just listening to this podcast for the first time, uh, check out their their um, site and blog and their writing and the podcast and things like that. Those are all valuable resources. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I'm so excited for the listeners to hear this and to hear all about what worship truly is and to realize it's so much more 
than just a couple of songs on a Sunday morning. I appreciate you joining us on the show today, uh, David Manor, and I hope to get back together with you another time soon. That sounds great, Travis. Good to talk to you again, man. Well, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Winds of Change, the Reckless Abandoned Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider joining us next week again as we talk with Brett Kunkel, author of A Practical Guide to Culture. Here are a few of our favorite highlights from the show. There's not an area of life, whether it's entertainment or whether it's your sports or whether it's homework or whether it's job, there's not a single area of life that Christ does not touch. We need to know the truth and we need to know why we believe it. The truth becomes an anchor for our souls. God is, uh, he's the creator, he's our designer. So our origin comes from God. If you wanna know how human beings are supposed to live and move and have our being in this world, well, you go back to the designer. When I'm living in obedience to Christ and I'm flourishing, then people notice that. They notice the deep-seated joy I might have, this, this continued faithfulness to God, and then they start asking questions. And then they start peeking in. And they start wondering, okay, why, why are you experiencing a different texture of life than, than they're experiencing? 